0: Welcome Cecil Castellucci and Diana Wagman.
1: It doesn't matter. <laughs> Just take my picture, Celine. <laughs> Hi. Um, come on over, Diana. Oh. Hi, um, my name is Cecil Castellucci. And I'm Diana Wagman. Um, and um, we are the happy coordinators of this evening of YA Resists. Um, this uh, we have a very loose organization here in Los Angeles called the Los Angeles Young Adult Writers, and it's sort of a very very ad hoc uh, email list and Facebook group where we sort of uh, email each other to to, to lend and support argue. and argue and give advice. And um, we were having a conversation about um, about uh, you know these uh, these interesting times that we're that we're living in. Um, and and sort of what, uh, what what could we do? And um, there's been a big movement of authors resist uh, where there have been a lot of readings about, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, dystopias and um, all, all kinds of adult books um, that have to do with sort of resistance. Um, but we thought maybe it would be really interesting to do a um, reading where it highlighted young adult books uh, and middle grade books, books for young people that showed activism and resistance. So um, we actually... Um, compiled a a list. And if you want it, you can ask one of us for our email and we'll gladly send you the PDF. But there's about 25 books here that are for middle grade and young adult people um, that have acts of resistance and protest in them. So if you have a teacher that you want to give it to or anything like that, it's compiled from a bunch of sources. And we'll be reading from some of those books um, this evening. Um, And we're so happy that Penn Center USA um, helped
2: us to co-sponsor this event. Event. And uh, Diana's going to talk a little bit about Penn. Center. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Penn. Probably some of you in here are members, but you all should be. It's just a literary organization. The Penn Center West is part of the big pen that's nationwide. And their mission is to stimulate and maintain interest in the written word to foster a vital literary culture and to defend freedom of expression domestically and internationally. Right now they're working very hard to help the journalists who were arrested and cited for Standing Rock, for reporting on Standing Rock and being there. So they do a lot of work In the world, um, they work to free journalists who are imprisoned in other countries, and um, they're a great organization. So thank you to Penn for supporting us, and yes, and I recommend you all join. Join up. So I'm just going to do a quick read of all the authors that are going to be
1: reading tonight, and then as each author comes up, they'll introduce themselves and the book that they're reading. So this evening we have me, Cecil Castellucci, um, Cherry Chiva, Brandy Colbert, Maureen Gu, Kristen Kitcher, Lindsay Kling. Klingelly, Klingle Klingle, Klingle. Uh, Gretchen McNeil Lillian Rivera Celine Ross Shereel oh, Smith is sick and she can't be here tonight Janet Tash- Tashigen uh, Diana Wagman and Mark London Williams so please give a round of applause to our um,
2: authors and we'll start off the evening with Diana Wagman I'm going to start with a classic that probably many of you read. Um, It came out in 1974. It's called The Chocolate War. And it's about, and I'm embarrassed to say this copy is from the library because (laughs) I gave my copy away. But um, it's about a boy's school uh, run by brothers, monks, and there's a chocolate sale where each boy is required, not required, strongly encouraged to sell 50 boxes of chocolate. And it's really about one young, skinny freshman's desire, or determination to say no. So I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Jerry opened his locker. He had Jerry is the main character. Jerry opened his locker. He had thumbtacked a poster to the back wall on the first day of school. The poster showed a wide expanse of beach, a sweep of sky with a lone star glittering far away. A man walked on the beach, a small solitary figure in all that immensity. At the bottom of the poster, these words appeared, "'Do I dare disturb the universe?' by Elliot, who wrote that wasteland thing they were studying in English. Jerry wasn't sure of the poster's meaning, but it had moved him mysteriously. It was traditional at Trinity for everyone to decorate the interior of the locker with a poster. Jerry chose that one. He had no time now to ponder the poster any longer. The final bell rang, and he had 30 seconds to get to class. So the brother in charge of the sale calls out roll, and the boys answer with how many boxes they've sold. Adamo, two. Beauvais, three. It was a different roll call this morning, a new melody, a new tempo, as if Brother Leon were the conductor and the class, the members of a verbal orchestra. But something was wrong with the beat, something wrong with the entire proceedings, as if the members of the orchestra were controlling the pace and not the conductor. No sooner would Brother Leon call out a name than the response came immediately before Leon had time to make a notation in the ledger. It was the kind of spontaneous game that developed in classes without premeditation, everyone falling into a sudden conspiracy. Jerry was glad that he wouldn't have to look into those watery eyes much longer. LeBlanc, one. Malloran, two. Names and numbers sizzled in the air and Jerry began to notice something curious about it. All the ones and twos and an occasional three, but no fives, no tens. And Brother Leon's head still bent, concentrating on the ledger. And finally, Jerry Renault, It would be so easy, really, to yell yes. To say, give me the chocolates to sell, Brother Leon. So easy to be like the others, not to have to confront those terrible eyes every morning. Brother Leon finally looked up. The tempo of the roll call had broken. No, Jerry said. He was swept with sadness, a sadness deep and penetrating, leaving him desolate like someone washed up on a beach, a lone survivor in a world full of strangers.
3: Hi, uh, I'm Maureen Gu. I am the author of I Believe in a Thing Called Love, which is coming out in May. Um, and I am going to be reading from a middle grade novel called Operation Redwood. This is, yeah, sorry. Can you like hear me if I'm right here? Um, do I have right here? Okay. <laughs> um, so this book is called Operation Redwood. It's by uh, S. Terrell French. I believe it came out 2006 or something 2009 um, and the basic premise is there is a small grove of redwood trees by this girl's house um, her name is Robin and she enlists the help of a stranger who becomes her friend Julian to help her save this grove of trees from an evil logging company and um, I chose this book because I really like trees and I'm like a cat lady and a tree lady so I picked this one Um, and the scene is the scene I'm going to set up is just them trying to brainstorm how they're going to actually defeat the logging company we could write a letter to somebody Robin suggested the president or maybe the governor You think they're going to care about some little pocket of trees way out here? They wouldn't even read it. Okay, then. You think of something. We'll take turns. Julian began sharpening the other end of the stick. It doesn't have to be a good idea, Robin said impatiently. Just throw out any idea. It's called brainstorming. Well, how about a protest? Who's going to be protesting? You and me and Molly and Jojo? They're her little, like, baby sisters. Your turn, then... "'We'll chain ourselves to the trees,' Robin suggested, "'so they can't cut them down.' "'Julian grimaced. "'How long can you stay chained to a tree anyway?' "'He clicked his blade closed and put the knife back in his pocket. "'Robin sighed and flopped down on her back. "'The tree soared up around them, letting in a jagged ring of blue sky. "'They could hear the hollow sound of a woodpecker drilling high above them. "'I just thought of an idea,' Robin said, sitting up again. "'But it's a secret.' "'What kind of secret?' She looked at him with with her fierce blue eyes. A big secret. If I tell you, you have to promise, cross your heart and hope to die, that you won't tell. I promise. Cross your heart and hope to die. Okay, cross my heart and hope to die. Okay, so right in the middle of Big Tree Grove, there's a secret tree house. Where? Asked Julian, looking up at the canopy around him. Not far, but I've never been inside. My brothers refuse to bring me up until I'm 12. That's July 29th. There's some big ceremony. She was quiet, sucking at the end of her braid for a moment. Well, so what? So what if there's a big treehouse? We could go up in it like Julia Butterfly Hill. Who's that? She sighed with exasperation. Ugh, you don't know anything. She's this woman, and she was trying to protect this big old tree near Humboldt, way up north of here, and she went on this platform way up high in the tree where nobody could reach her, and she lived there for more than two years, so nobody could cut it down. Did it work, Julian asked skeptically? (laughs) I think it did. The logging company didn't cut down the tree, and a lot of other trees ended up being protected. It was called... She paused. She paused headwaters. I think. Anyway, the point is, we could do the same thing. We could go up into the treehouse and stay there, and then nobody could get us down until they agreed to save Big Tree Grove. Julian turned this idea over in his mind. Staking out a treehouse is much better than chaining himself to a tree.
4: Hi, my name is Brandy Colbert. Um, My next book, Little and Lion, will be available in August from Little Brown Books for Young Readers. Um, Tonight, I'm going to read from The Rock and the River. It's by Keckla Magoon. It came out in 2009. Um, The setting is 1968 Chicago, which was a pretty volatile time. Um, it's about, the protagonist is a 13-year-old black kid named Sam, and his dad is a big civil rights leader, um, who marched with Dr. King, and I believe right before this passage, um, Dr. King has been assassinated, and, um, also Sam's older brother, Stick, has joined the Black Panthers, and Sam doesn't know if he should, um, try to discourage him or maybe join with him uh, because his friend Bucky has been charged with assaulting a cop and has been in jail. Um, So the scene I'm going to read is a demonstration right before uh, Bucky's sentencing or right before his trial begins. I'd never stood up front at one of father's demonstrations before. Seeing the crowd from this side of the demonstration was as foreign to me as seeing the earth from outer space. A sea of faces spread out in front of me, mostly black, but also a number of white, carrying signs and cheering for Bucky's release. In the front row, a man stood with his tiny daughter perched on his shoulders. The girl held a hand-lettered free Bucky poster that kept flapping in her father's face. His, ruck, ruck, excuse me, his work-roughened hands wrapped around her pink shoes, anchoring her legs against his chest. Beside them, a balding man with hunched shoulders clutched the wooden police barricade for balance, swaying with the jostling crowd i wondered if there had been this many people at the last demonstration i'd been at the energy of the crowd thrilled me i looked up at father and smiled he smiled back patting my shoulder buildings rose tall above the colorful colorful cluster of heads and bodies a totally different skyline view from the steps than from the street ready to go father asked i nodded bringing my attention back to the crowd father stepped up to the microphone he placed his hands along the sides of the podium preparing to speak but his face froze and he gripped the wood frame as if he needed it to hold himself up I sucked in my breath and followed his gaze the Panthers had arrived they marched in two straight lines right up to the courthouse steps people moved out of the way to let them through they looked so serious the crowds chanting faltered then stopped altogether as people turned to stare Leroy, Rahim, Stick, Lester, Charlie, Maxie I did a double take, Maxie She was dressed like the rest of them Black beret, black jacket, black shoes They stood at attention right there in the center of the crowd They didn't talk to anyone or break ranks They weren't there to start something They were there for Bucky Father drew a long breath He glanced at me out the corner of his eye Then began speaking I wasn't hearing him My eyes locked on the Panthers. I could have been down there with them. I could have been part of the reason everyone was staring. With Stick's gun tucked secretly under my dress clothes, I was one of them, wasn't I? The crowd grew frenzied as the prison vans pulled up alongside the protesters. I gasped when I caught sight of Bucky. He looked thinner than ever, and he was built long and lean to begin with. They'd shaved his head smooth and dressed him in an orange prison jumpsuit. He was handcuffed. Reporters leaped out of their vehicles, latched onto the small group, and followed Bucky into the building, shouting questions at him. He kept his eyes on the ground as the guards hustled him through the throng, up the courthouse steps, and into the building. Shortly after Bucky arrived, the counter demonstrators showed up, 40 or 50 whites, carrying posters and screaming at the top of their lungs. Their signs said, cop killer, and hang him today, even though Bucky had done nothing to the cops who'd beaten him. A line of, our, a line of cops streamed out of the courthouse and raced down the steps. They positioned themselves between our crowd and the angry white protesters on their way. I don't know what they thought they could do, but it didn't work. For a few minutes, it was like watching oil and water. White folks on one side, blacks on the other. That didn't last long. Father eyed the crowd from the podium. He resumed speaking. Against the rhythm of his voice, harsh cries rose from the edge of the crowd. The shouting, cursing, spitting sounds of the scuffle reached me all the way up front. The Panthers broke ranks and filtered out through the crowd. Stick edged around people to get to the fighting, like a soldier looking for the front line. A burly white man in a union jacket charged through a line of people, fists flying. Stick intercepted him with a shoulder bump that sent the man reeling a few steps back. He caught his balance and lunged for Stick. Stick fought back, but his injury from two days ago hadn't healed. He wasn't hitting as hard or as fast as he could. He punched with his left fist, holding his right arm close to his chest.
5: Hello, my name is Gretchen McNeil, and I'm probably most well known for my young adult horror novel 10, which is not about resistance <laughs> or <laughs> protest, unless you're protesting death. Um, and tonight I'm reading from We Shall Not Be Moved, which is a nonfiction account of the women's factory strike in New York of 1909. I have a really good friend that owns a half-floor loft in Soho in Manhattan. You can imagine what that's worth. Um, It's a historic 19th century building, and I'm lucky enough to stay there whenever I'm in New York. And he told me one time that the whole building used to be a garment factory, a sweatshop, Um, and that multi-million dollar loft would once have been packed with teenage girls. Most of them were between the ages of 16 and 20, but some as young as 13. They were immigrants, Italians and Eastern Europeans primarily, and they spoke no English. They earned less than $10 a week, and they earned less than the men who did the same jobs, because the men had the vote, and the men had a union. Um... And in 1909, this illiterate group of immigrant teenage girls went on strike during a brutal winter, and they brought a multi-million dollar garment industry to its knees. Everyone reported for work the morning after the strike vote. Those who had taken the oath, as well as those who had only heard about it, waited uncertainly by their sewing machines. As one worker remembered it, For two hours, we stayed whispering, and no one knowing what the other would do, not making up our minds. Then I started to get up. And just at the same time, we all got up together, in one second. No one after the other, no one before. We all stood up, and we all walked out. And already out on the sidewalk in front, the policemen stood with the clubs, They set off for Clinton Hall, chosen as strike headquarters, but it was no easy matter to get there, for the streets were almost impassable. They'd been taken over by a cheering, singing, gesticulating army of women workers. In fact, the entire Lower East Side had become one seething mass of humanity that clogged the sidewalks and spilled out into the cobblestoned gutters. Traffic, both horses and autos, had been stopped cold, and some 200 police reserves and plain clothesmen had been called out to maintain order it seemed the army might at any moment erupt into the, west, the rest of Manhattan invading Wall Street and the Bowery by 10 o'clock 15,000 workers had left their machines by nightfall 25,000 within the next few days the number rose to nearly 30 leaders sprang up out of nowhere girls and women who had never thought of themselves as remarkable stepped forward to take charge wherever needed amazing everyone including themselves Some were experienced and well-paid, with less cause to complain than the general mass of workers, and it was exactly this that inspired them. There was a feeling that everyone was working for her neighbor, and that the strong were championing the cause of the weak. Within days of the strike call, the Association of Waste and Dress Manufacturers of New York declared open war on the strikers. They urged small owners who had already made settlements to repudiate them. New workers were hired, as well as reinforcements for the ranks of paid thugs who intimidated the strikers. They used their fists routinely against the girls, and just as routinely, police hauled the strikers away for disorderly conduct. Each time, the story was different, but the results were always the same. Arrests, the patrol wagon, fines or jail sentences, and the thugs released. Yet the picket lines went out each day, battle ready. Many of the workers were still penniless from the dull summer season and had never bought warm clothes. They wore short little jackets or sweaters, and they marched in twos and threes, shivering and holding their signs aloft. Icy rains poured down on them. Some were in danger of frostbite. A winter of record breaking cold had already begun. But there they were, and there they stayed. Soon women's groups throughout the country were drawn to the side of the workers. Reformers moved to tears by stories of teenage girls who were beaten by professional thugs and jailed by corrupt judges. Surely this was the most significant gain of the uprising. It's a revelation of the power that lies in sisterhood. For no band of millionaire men has ever gone to the aid of male workers, yet women of all classes clasped hands and joined forces during the factory strike.
6: Hi, I'm Cherry Chiva. Um, I'm the author of She's So Money, and I'm going to be reading from Destroy All Cars by Blake Nelson, which is about a high school student named James Hoff, who's from Portland. He's very Portland. Um, He's very alternative. Uh, He cares a lot about the environment and climate change. And he thinks that most other Americans are overly consumeristic garbage people. (laughs) And uh, the book basically traces a semester in his life as he deals with school and his parents and romantic turmoil and activism. And a large part of the book consists of the uh, assignments that he does for his AP English class. And here's an excerpt from one of those assignments. James Hoff, Junior AP English. Assignment. Four page persuasive essay. Destroy all cars. We stand at the edge. We stand at the brink. We have come to a final point in history. Greenhouse gases are heating our oceans, choking our atmosphere, changing our entire planet. Toxins and pollutants threaten not only our lives, but all life on Earth. If action is not taken, all will be lost. We can no longer chip away at the edges of our problem with meaningless feel-good solutions. Recycling, buying green products, take the bus to work day, none of these will save our atmosphere or slow down the disastrous heating effects of air pollution. Organic salad bars are not going to refreeze the North Pole. Instead, we must fearlessly strike at the root of the problem. We must destroy all cars. We must destroy all cars for what they do. We must destroy all cars for what they stand for. We must destroy all cars to break the mindset that makes it impossible to see beyond our own most immediate and selfish needs. We must destroy all cars because if we don't, they will destroy us. I am so sick of cars. <laughs> I'm sick of cars idling in my school parking lot. I'm sick of the endless river of them that forms every morning on the main road by my house. I'm sick of sitting on the bus and watching them packed all around me, 9%, 90% of them containing a single individual. I'm sick of that one woman sitting there in her cocoon of false safety with her Poland spring water and her healthy choice granola bar polluting the world outside while inside in her air-conditioned insulation pod, she deludes herself into thinking that drinking fake mineral water and eating fake candy bars is going to purify her body. I reject that person. I reject the falsity of this belief system call to arms. Young people, students, future citizens and leaders, I ask you to clearly see where our present course is taking us. The automobile is the foundation upon which our unsustainable lifestyle is based. They must be destroyed. All of them, even the cute ones, even the little Mini Cooper that Daddy bought you for your birthday, Ashley. (laughs) Cars keep the present political system in place. They keep lower class people going to war. They keep upper class people in their mansions and their private jets. By sitting in our gas guzzling minivans in traffic, moving at three miles an hour, burning fuel pointlessly, we are keeping the whole car-based social system afloat. Every day oil companies make billions of dollars because we lazy ass Americans cannot ride a bike to school or work. The end. January 17th, got a C plus on my essay, typical. <laughs>
7: That was amazing. Hi, I'm Lillian Rivera, and my book is uh, The Education of Margot Sanchez, and I am reading The Revolution of Evelyn Serrano by uh, Sonia Manzana, who is uh, Maria from Sesame Street. And she has written a book, and it is set in 1969 New York, and it is about the um, Young Lords Party, which is a Puerto Rican activist group and sort of in line with uh, the Black Panthers, and they take over this church, this um, church, and they want to feed young people. And, you know, they don't want it to just be a church where people pray. So Evelyn is stuck in this church now, and her grandmother is really revolutionary. She's very tough. Her mother doesn't want her to be anywhere close to the young lords, but here she is in church. And this is where we begin. Um, Girl Young Lords. Yes, for the first time there were girl Young Lords. They were wearing jeans just like the boys, and they acted like they didn't care how they looked, which only made them look more beautiful. All had natural hair, long or short or wavy or kinky, and I felt stupid with my little roll of bangs. I fussed around with them to make them look more natural. But even as I ran my fingers through my hair, I could sense that they were on extra alert, checking all around during the service. The lights in their eyes were beacons, the congregation looking I guess for friends or enemies. Even as I was thinking about all these things the girl young lords their hair my hair that we were being watched the pressure cooker burst when the young lord with the blinding smile and the kinky hair stood up and yelled there's something wrong here this is not a community. That was it. Suddenly, like a herd of bulls, 25 policemen charged in. This time they weren't in shock like they were when they were watching the burning garbage. This time they came prepared. One of them rushed the young lord with a blinding smile and kinky hair saying, step aside, you all gotta leave. Everybody stopped moving. The policeman repeated himself. My mother got up and scooted across the aisle, moving faster than I'd ever seen her move before, and grabbed my arm as I tried to look at what was going on between the young lord and the policeman. Y'all gotta leave, the cop repeated. Now, my mother pulled at me. Let's go, she growled. The young lord made no effort to move, and neither did I. Then you're all under arrest, screamed the cop. He grabbed the boy. The boy pulled back. The cop brought his dice stick up. Crack. He had tried to smash it down on the boy's head, but the boy held his arm up, the blow, catching the blow with his elbow. I heard a sickening snap. Then it was like a blast of air fanning a fire. The, po- the police rushed at the other young lords, striking them and even pushing some of the girl young lords who fought back. Abuela picked up a chair to stop the cop who had hurt the boy. I rushed to her side when my mother blocked me just as the chair tumbled out of Abuela's hand and landed square on mommy's back. I looked for Abuela to help me with mommy, but she was trying to stand between the young lords and the cops. The police started arresting the young lords, and the rest of us got swept out of the door like debris on a wave of humanity. They are arresting them, Abuela said, but this is just the beginning. It's-
8: I'm Mark Williams. Um, Let's see, currently I have out um, the word, I anchored the word half of a graphic novel called Two Trickster Tango, which is one of the few books uh, that's not a Haggadah that's perfect for Passover giving, and I can explain more about that afterwards. Then I have an L.A. set zombie apocalypse for uh, for kid readers coming out in a few months. But I will not be reading from either of those instead. (laughs) Cory Doctorow's Little Brother. And um, I will not be reading that copy, but rather from a screen, because Corey, being kind of a tech head and uh, apostle and advocate of sort of digital life and digital resistance, he makes a lot of his books... um, quite freely available open source etc so if you're like me and you lose your physical copy after you move you can easily find them online and all he asks is that if you like it then maybe you do get a physical copy or two and donate it to a school or a library and in this book this book strikes literally close to home for me it's set in the san francisco bay area where i grew up where i go back often, go giants and this is um in this book there is a uh, an even more catastrophic terrorist attack that outstrips 9/11 and it's um, the blowing up of the bay bridge and a bart tunnel simultaneously so the water rushes and thousands are drowned bodies are left at the bottom of the bay and so san francisco becomes kind of a garrison city martial law a police state and our hero marcus and his three friends are picked up after the attack they're stumbling out of the bart tube with a wounded friend who's bleeding but instead of getting medical help they're picked up by DHS and Because they are tech heads like their author, Corey, and hackers, there are lots of cell phones and wires and laptops and sort of home-brewed electronics in their backpacks, and they're immediately suspect of um, remotely triggering bombs. And they are whisked away for five days or so by DHS with no phone calls, and they are tortured. Um, sleep-deprived, food-deprived, etc., made to confess for crimes they didn't do. And eventually, when they find out they didn't do them, they have to release them, threatening that if they tell anybody, they will um, come after their parents and their friends. So now Marcus is trying to resume his normal life, and he's going back to school. And there's a social studies teacher who questions this military authority, the trade-off of security for freedom. And then she is suddenly replaced one day by a series of substitutes who are now espousing a kind of pro-DHS security instead of freedom. Um, uh, viewpoint, and this is an argument he has in class with one of the new substitute teachers. I was feeling sick. This is not what I'd learned or believed about my country. I put my hand up. Yes, Marcus. I don't get it. You're making it sound like the Bill of Rights is optional. It's the Constitution. We're supposed to follow it absolutely. That's a common oversimplification, she said, giving me a fake smile. But the fact of the matter is that the framers of the Constitution intended it to be a living document that was revised over time. They understood that the Republic wouldn't be able to last forever if the government of the day couldn't govern according to the needs of the day. They never intended the Constitution to be looked on like religious doctrine. After all, they came here fleeing religious doctrine. I shook my head. What? No. They were merchants and artisans and who were loyal to the king until the king instituted policies that were against their interests and forced them brutally. The religious refugees were, refugees were way earlier. Some of those framers were descended from those refugees, she said. And the Bill of Rights isn't supposed to be something that you pick and choose from. What the framers hated was tyranny. That's what the Bill of Rights is supposed to prevent. They were a revolutionary army, and they wanted a set of principles that everyone could agree to. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The right of people to throw off their oppressors. Yes, yes, she said, <laughs> waving at me. They believed in the right of the people to get rid of their kings, but... Charles, the fascist kid, was grinning when she said that. He smiled even wider. They set out the Bill of Rights because they thought that having absolute rights was better than the risk that someone would take them away. Like the First Amendment, it's supposed to protect us by preventing the government from creating two kinds of speech, a loud speech and criminal speech. They didn't want to face the risk that some jerk would decide that the things that he found unpleasant were illegal. She turned and wrote on the board, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're getting a little ahead of the lesson, but you seem like an advanced group, the others laughed at this nervously. The role of government is to secure for citizens the rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in that order. It's like a filter. If the government wants to do something that makes us a little unhappy or takes away some of our liberty, that's okay, providing they are doing it to save our lives. That's why the cops can lock you up if they think you're a danger to yourself or others. You lose your liberty and happiness to protect life. If you've got life, you might get liberty and happiness later. Some of the others had their hands up. Doesn't that mean that they can do anything they want if they say it's to stop someone from hurting us in the future? Yeah, another kid said. This sounds like you're saying that national security is more important than the Constitution. I was so proud of my fellow students then. I said, how can you protect freedom by suspending the Bill of Rights? She shook her head at us like we were being very stupid. The revolutionary founding fathers shot traitors and spies. They didn't believe in absolute freedom either, not when it threatened the republic. Now you take these XNet people. These are hackers who have been communicating outside the strictures of, of DHS in the city. I tried hard not to stiffen these so-called jammers who were on the news this morning. After the city was attacked by people who have declared war on this country, they set about sabotaging the security measures set up to catch the bad guys and prevent them from doing it again. They did this by endangering and conveniencing their fellow citizens. They did it to show that our rights were being taken away in the name of protecting them, I said. Okay, I shouted. God, she had me so steamed. They did it because the government was treating everyone like a suspected terrorist. So they wanted to prove they shouldn't be treated like terrorists, Charles shouted back. So they acted like terrorists, so they committed terrorism. I boiled. Oh, for Christ's sakes. Committed terrorism, they showed that universal surveillance was more dangerous than terrorism. Look at what happened at the park last weekend. Those people were just dancing and listening to music. How is that terrorism? The teacher crossed the room and stood before me, looming over me, till I shut up. Marcus, you seem to think that nothing has changed in this country. You need to understand that the bombing of the Bay Bridge changed everything. Thousands of our friends and relatives lie dead at the bottom of the bay. This is a time for national unity in the face of vi- the violent insult our country has suffered. I'd stood up. i had enough of this. Everything has changed crap. National unity... The whole point of America is that we're the country where dissent is welcome. We're a country of dissidents and fighters and university dropouts and free speech people. I thought of Mrs. Galvez's last lesson before she was let go and the thousands of Berkeley students who'd surrounded the police van when they tried to arrest a guy for distributing civil rights literature. No one tried to stop those trucks when they drove away with all the people who'd been dancing in the park the other day. I didn't try then either. I was running away. Maybe everything had changed. I believe you know where Mr. Benson's office is, she said. You were to present yourself to him immediately. I will not have my classes disrupted by disrespectful behavior. For someone who claims to love freedom of speech, you're certainly willing to shout down anyone who disagrees with you. I picked up my school book and my bag and my laptop and stormed out. The door had a gas lift, so it was impossible to slam it. I would have slammed it. <laughs> I was fast in Mr. Benson's office. Cameras filmed me as I went. My gait was recorded. The chips in my student ID broadcast my identity to censors in the hallway. It was like being in jail. Close the door, Marcus, Mr. Benson said, turning his screen around so that I could see the video feed from the classroom. He'd been watching the whole thing. What do you have to say for yourself? That wasn't teaching. She told us that the Constitution didn't matter. That was propaganda. <laughs>
9: Hello. Um, I'm Kristen Kitcher. I write uh, mysteries for young readers. The wig in the window and the tiara on the terrorist. <laughs> Speaking of terrorism kids are often like the tiara on the terrorist. Yeah, I'll read that next. Um, I'm going to be reading from one of my favorite books, um, One Crazy Summer. It came out in 2010 and won so many awards they can't even put them all on the on, on the cover um, by Rita Williams Garcia. And we are staying in the Bay Area um, where Delphine the main character and her two Sisters, Vanetta and Fern, um, are sent to Oakland um, to go to Black Panther Summer Camp. Um, their mother, <laughs> their mother, uh, abandoned them early, and they've grown up, grown up in Brooklyn um, with her father and grandparents. And um, they find themselves in a whole new world, um, learning about what their mother has been up to. Um, who goes by the name Nizila now, um, but her, her given name is Cecile. I'm going to read from two short uh different sections can you hear me okay yeah Yeah. um one where Delphine is really not so sure about this protest business um, particularly since people seem to end up dead Um, she is they are preparing for a rally um, in honor of Bobby Hutton who um, was killed by police um, uh, was a black young uh, at age 17 Um, and they are preparing for this rally and uh, making signs for them and um, this is what Delphine has to say about that Sister Makumbu said what's troubling you Sister Delphine why don't you want to participate in the rally <laughs> Sister Makumbu, it's all dangerous just being here in the center is dangerous she was silent for a while I see that meant she wasn't going to lie to me I wanted to still like her I couldn't if she lied to me I have to look out for my sisters you know Sister Makumbu said. We look out for each other. The rally is one way of looking out for all of our sisters, all of our brothers. Unity, Sister Delphine. We have to stand united. I was thinking, alive. We have to be alive. Wouldn't little Bobby rather be alive than be remembered? Wouldn't he rather be sitting out in the park than have the park named after him? I wanted to watch the news. I wanted to watch the news, not be in it. The more I thought about it, The more I had my answer. We were staying home tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. We certainly weren't going to be in no rally. So, spoiler alert. (laughs) It's time for the rally. (laughs) Let's see what happens. Who would have have thought, they've been making flyers and posters that say Free Huey and posters in honor of Bobby, Little Bobby. Who would have thought 20 flyers could have brought more than a thousand people to the park? Talk about a grand negro, well, a grand black spectacle. People simply came, filling up every inch of green in the park. Some even climbed oak trees and perched in branches for a good spot. Everywhere you turned, there were college students in t-shirts, signing people up for sickle cell anemia testing and voter registration. Black Panthers from around the country in sky blue t-shirts with pictures of Black Panthers on them stood tall patrolling the park. Policemen also stood tall holding on to their wooden clubs. And yet, I wasn't afraid. I was excited. You see, Sister Mikumbu said, waving her bangled arm like a wand over the hundreds of people, maybe a thousand. I feel ashamed of the pride I take in ironing a crease extra sharp. Earning a sharp crease is a job well done, but bringing people to this rally was magic that you had soaring above trees. It, was certainly, it certainly was worth marching up to the no-sayers. In my mind, all these people came to the rally because our summer camp helped to spread the word. The idea of radio announcements, the Black Panther newspaper, and word of mouth hadn't even entered my mind. If only Cecile could see what we'd done, and Pa and Big Ma.
10: Hi, I'm Celine Busby and I am probably best known for a true crime memoir that I wrote um, about police corruption and organized crime. It's a picture book. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's for teens. Um, I am going to read to you tonight from Two Boys Kissing by David Levithan. I love it when the title of a book tells you exactly what it's about. (laughs) So, um... Uh, This book takes place in a small community where um, one young man, um, an African-American teenager, is singled out and severely beaten when um, this group of bullies find out that he's gay. Afterwards, when the police do nothing and uh, the school officials do nothing, his friends get together and decide that they're going to form their own protest and they want to do a peaceful protest. And the peaceful protest that they come up with is sort of romantic in that what they decide to do is they're going to um, uh, beat the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest kiss, but there's a catch. It's going to be a gay kiss. So two of his friends set out to break that world record, and um, the section I'm going to read to you is when they're nearing the 24-hour mark, which isn't even the record. The record's like 36 hours or something. But once they even get to 24 hours with this gay kiss, people show up to protest their protest, as happens, which whatever, strange times, right? <laughs> A peaceful protest getting protested. Go ahead. We return to the kiss. The crowd has started to count down the minutes until Craig and Harry hit the 24 hour mark. Not everyone is counting. There are jeers now, people from town and people from other towns who have come to protest, who've come to yell, who've come to break whatever spell that two boys kissing can cast. Some of them make a production of praying for Craig and Harry's souls. Some hold hastily scrawled posters. Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve and homosexuality is a sin you can't kiss your way out of hell (laughs) some have brought their children the police don't know what to do separate everyone into two camps or let them mingle it takes only one shoving match for the separation to start But the protesters will not be hidden. They want to be within hearing range of the cameras and of the boys. The ring around the boys holds on. When someone needs to leave, whether to go home or just go to the bathroom, another person takes his or her place. They keep their backs to the protesters, their eyes on Craig and Harry. Tariq has now been awake for almost 30 hours. His body is racked with caffeine, his eyes burning by so much screen time. I should stop here and say, Tariq is the boy who was beaten, and he's um, kind of a video-savvy kid, so he's broadcasting this record-long kiss. People keep telling him to go home, to take a nap, but he doesn't want to miss a moment. If Craig and Harry are going to stay awake, he'll stay awake, too. Solidarity. Craig and Harry can hear the jeering, but they can't hear it very clearly. Tariq offered to get them headphones to block it all out, but they're sticking to the speakers, sticking to the playlist. It helps to have words to reach for, an element of unpredictability. The day is getting warmer. Harry signals for the removal of his hoodie, but even after it's off, he's still hot, sweating. Craig can feel it too, the blush rising from Harry's skin, the dampness of his shirt. What he doesn't feel is how much Harry's legs are killing him. No matter how he shifts and kicks, he can't get them to feel normal. The ache is becoming unbearable, like someone is twisting each and every vein around each and every muscle. He's brought back by the countdown: twenty, nineteen, eighteen. He feels Craig's smile under his lips. Seventeen, sixteen, fifteen. People are pressing in to see. It's getting hotter and hotter. Fourteen, thirteen, twelve. He tries to focus. Eleven, ten, nine. Tariq calls out that there are over, are over 300,000 people watching online. Eight, seven, six, one of the news stations burns them with their lights, wanting to capture this moment. Five, four, three, Craig is kissing him now, really kissing him, like when they were together. Two, it's so hot, the lights are so bright. One, an enormous wave of cheering. They have made it to 24 Hours. They have made it for a day.
11: I am uh, Janet Tashin and I write books for uh, middle grade and young adult and I wrote a book uh, almost 20 years ago called The Gospel According to Larry and it was uh, about a kid in high school, an activist, who fought uh, consumerism, and uh, sweatshops, and celebrity worship, and all kinds of things. He was just really uh, active, and then that was the first book, and then I was going to just have that as a standalone novel, and then something horrible happened, the 2000 election, and then it was like the Supreme Court deciding, and counting of the chads, and everything else, And my fear was that kids who already barely showed up for the election weren't going to show up ever again, because it doesn't matter, our vote doesn't count, whatever. So um, I brought Larry back, and uh, he got kind of pulled out of hiding, and uh, he said, okay, I'm going to run for president. But of course, he's only 18 years old, couldn't really run, which he knew. So then he said, but I'm just going to talk about voting and talk about getting involved and talk about kids. And then he starts giving all these speeches, and then you know, a 28th Amendment is passed saying that you can be 18 to run for president so then he's kind of screwed so this is from one of his uh, speeches watch TV consume don't make waves work, die is this the American dream? no, but it's the way most of us live our lives these days Notice that voting is not on the list. That's because only a minority of people vote in this country. The media love to use words as landslide and trend when they describe elections. But when you break it down, it's only a small percentage of people that decide the fate of our country. Only 39% of all registered voters bothered to vote in in the 2002 midterms. About half, 17%, voted Republican. The media called the event a mandate of the people. Since when is 17% a mandate of anything? This small percentage of the American population decided who now controls our House and Senate. You want to know government's dirty little secret? It's more outrageous than other conspiracies in our history, more telling than the Pentagon Papers or Watergate. Politicians don't want you to vote. Voting means you're passionate about the issues, enough to get out and do something about it. Voting challenges the status quo, but the politicians in Washington don't want you to do that. They want you to sit back and enjoy the ride while they drive our country down the path of big business handouts, which in turn increases their own care campaign war chests. They love low voter turnout. It means the stalwarts will be the only ones out there carrying the party torches while the rest of us scratch our heads and wonder why our voices aren't being heard. People think by not voting they're casting a vote against the system. Wrong. (laughs) By not voting you're letting a small minority determine the policy for the rest of us. We can't sit back anymore. The most radical thing we can do is actually something as pedestrian as voting. News flash. Decisions are made by the people who show up. If 90% of the people in this country actually cast their ballots on Election Day, the administration would head for the hills. How about this for a crazy idea? Instead of sitting at home on your couch watching reality TV, you invest in your own reality and vote. I don't even care who you vote for. Whatever we do, we have to stop the hijacking of our government. It's ours. Let's take it back. We don't need to bomb a country halfway around the world in the name in the name of democracy. We can fight for it here. That's how important your ballot is. Be a rebel, be a radical, vote. The country needs your input. Are you letting your voice be heard? Thank you. <laughs>
0: Hi, my name is Lindsay Klingle, and uh, my debut, The Marked Girl, came out last summer. And I'm going to read from that girl, Lucy Moon, which is a lighthearted middle grade novel. Um, Lucy Moon is a sixth grader in Total- Turtle Rock, Minnesota, and she's already kind of a professional activist, which has made her a bit of an outcast at school. Uh, so I want to read from an early section where we learn more about her, and just to set up the scene. A boy in Lucy's class, Thomas Duke, he was conducting, conducting what he called bra tests, which is where he took his pencil and ran it up and down girls' backs to try and see if they were wearing bras. And, uh, yeah. So after a few days of this, Lucy Moon grabbed his pencil and broke it in half. And in response, her teacher assigned her an essay on why she shouldn't break other students' property because property is sacred. So here is Lucy Moon's essay why Thomas Duke's bra testing number two pencil is sacred by Lucy Moon (laughs) it's hard to figure out why Thomas Duke's pencil is sacred but that's what you said to write about so I'm trying to do it sacred according to the dictionary means set apart for worship or dedicated to a single use or worthy of reverence and respect you probably didn't mean the first two meanings because in the first case no one wants to worship Thomas Duke's tooth-dented pencil And in the second case, dedicated to a single use, if Thomas had only used his pencil for schoolwork, I wouldn't be writing this now. I am not kidding when I tell you that Thomas used his pencil for a second purpose, the daily bra check. So now, all I've got is the third meaning, worthy of reverence and respect. But I'm having trouble feeling reverent about Thomas Duke's pencil, even if he didn't sit there and run it up and down my back, hoping for a bra bump day after day after day. I don't even respect my favorite pencil, and that pencil is made from recycled Christmas trees. (laughs) But let's say that Thomas kept his pencil to himself. I agree that he would have had a right to use his pencil as long as he wanted, without me breaking it. I agree with that. Here's what I think is sacred. Justice, fairness, friendship, loyalty, truthfulness, and a place to live and learn without bullies. Mr. Scoglund... Why should I have to wear a training bra just to sit through homeroom in peace? Though even a training bra might not stop Thomas completely. I know you're going to make me write this essay again, but at least I told the truth.
1: Okay. So, um, my name is Cecil Castellucci, and uh, I write young adult novels, and uh, middle grade novels, and uh, picture books, and graphic novels. And I'm going to read from a book that I wrote in that came out in 2012 called "Rose Sees Red." And the story is um, two girls. One is uh, it takes place in 1982 in New York City, and it's two girls who are both ballet dancers. One is from the Soviet Union, and one is American. And um, they end up going out into New York City and having this third. 36-hour adventure, and the KGB don't know whether or not the girl is defecting or not. But at the end of of this adventure, they stumble upon the biggest no-nukes rally in American history, which um, happened in uh, June of 1982. I was in an ocean of every kind of person you could possibly imagine. Everyone who made up New York City, everyone who made up the world, professionals, parents, children, punks, physicists, yuppies, artists, actors, firemen, dock workers, cabbies, teachers, everyone. It was a people-watching paradise. They all had signs. Professionals for a nuke-free world. Parents for no nukes, no wars. Teach tolerance, teach peace. Teachers say no nukes. Punks for peace. Physicists for atoms, not bombs. Get active, not radioactive. (laughs) Who's Ron? Irena asked, pointing to a sign that said, This is not a movie, Ron. Our president, Maurice said, Ronald Reagan. (laughs) He was a movie actor, I explained. Irena's the, the Soviet girl. Oh, I see. This is real life and not a movie. Ronald Reagan, she said, and then she laughed. A huge blue whale balloon went by. It had a thought bubble over its head that said, Save the humans. Ha! I said, pointing it out to everyone. It's probably true that if whales could talk, they would tell us to stop having nuclear bombs. We all nodded. Those whales would definitely have something to say about it, I said. Too bad that's not in my skit, Caleb said. Let's go or I'll be late. We pushed deeper into the thick of the crowd. I felt as though I was a part of something bigger than myself. I looked around at the other people. Some walked at our pace, some moved faster, and some took their time. But they were all like us. We smiled at them, and they smiled at us, and embraced us as part of them. We shook our heads in approval back at them, and as we did, they welcomed us. People even handed us signs to hold up. Loving arms, not nuclear arms, freeze the arms race. It's a world emergency. The crowd thickened the closer we got to Central Park. We had our free arms linked together so that we wouldn't lose one another, and with our free hands, we held up the signs. There were more people there than I'd ever seen in one place, more people on the streets than what I'd seen at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. There were people with bullhorns. There were people with banners that said, No Nukes Now, and as we walked toward the park, I noticed that there were many people that were just watching us marchers walk by. How can they just stand there, I said. We're not a parade. Calm down there, Radical, Caleb said. They have the right to watch. Maybe they won't join us this time, but maybe they will the next time. But we're walking for them. How can they not be moved by the message, the message that we all want to live? I think some people just don't feel for the whole world, Caleb said. It's hard to feel for the whole world, Arena observed. "'It's hard to even feel for your friends and family sometimes,' I said, "'but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to.'" Irina seemed a bit overwhelmed by everything that was going on. Some of the bystanders were not just watching us passively. They were yelling at us all as we walked by. There were people protesting the peace march. There were people screaming that we were the dangerous, naive ones. They yelled, "'Peace is a Soviet weapon.'" They yelled, the devil's headquarters is in Moscow. They, <laughs> they yelled, you cannot trust those who are evil. They have bullhorns. What they were yelling hurt us all. Um, I just want to say, me and Diana just want to say thank you so much for coming out tonight. Um, We do have lists of all of these books that we read tonight and um, many more that show peace and resistance and activism in um, books for young people. Um, You can ask any of the readers. We'll be glad to email it to you or we've got some copies. Some of the books that have been read from tonight are here on sale and please, um, you know, thank you for coming out and for being part of the resistance.